is right now interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure of this, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, the, the human sometimes just asks the question, who are you? What kind of God does this? Who shall bring a charge against your church? Your love for us is unfathomable. Your patience with us is unfathomable. How great you are. How deep you are. That you, you saw it before time began, that you would send your son to die for your people. You have our attention, Father. We are right here with you. Thank you for inviting us here. Thank you for welcoming us into your courts. We say how lovely is the dwelling place of the Lord. I would rather spend 10,000 days in the courts of the Lord than one day in the tents of wickedness. Oh, how delightful it is to be here as the gathered body purchased by your blood. We are victorious in Christ Jesus. We are welcomed as your family in Christ Jesus. We are the sons and daughters of God. What an identity we have. And so when the lies speak, remind us who we are. When the lies of self try to catapult us into your place, remind us of who we are, that you are our Father, you are our God, you are our Lord, and we are not. And when the lies try to say that we are not worthy of your love, we can say no. We are no longer and cannot be condemned because of what Jesus Christ has done. Grace is final for those who believe in Christ. Oh, we receive your love, God. We receive it. Every drop of your love, we take it. We need it. We cling to your cross. And not only do we cling, we smile. Oh, how you make us happy. Your word today depends on you. Our hearts being able to understand something like this depends on you. 
So chief shepherd of the flock, feed us, please. That's our plea that we said to, you said to come to you like a child. You said we wouldn't be able to enter the kingdom unless we were like a child. And so like helpless children, we ask you to feed us. We can't reach up to the heights. <laughs> we can't reach up there and grab the food. My son can't reach the cereal. He has to get me to do it for him. And so we need you to grab the truth, the eternal word of God, and bring it down to us and help us understand it and feed us so that we might obey you in joy. So feed us, Lord. And if I may, I expect you. I'm excited for you to feed us. For your sake, Lord. Amen. You can be seated. If you are three or four years old, right now we, we want to uh, offer you a transition time. So mom and dad, you will see our ministry leader, Miss Rochelle, over here. If you will take your three and four-year-old over in that direction as the rest of us open up the word. Thank you guys for being here today. My name is Josh. And I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's a pleasure of mine. If you are new here with us, if you're visiting with us today, uh, we're glad that you're here. Thank you for coming uh, to church with us and joining us in this. Uh, you may hear what is rather obvious, and that is a persistent echo. Uh, please know that we hear it and know about it and are trying to figure it out as well. So. Uh, bear with us as we figure out how we're going to be addressing this issue. So thank you also uh, for not limiting, letting that limit your uh, engagement in worship. Uh, if you have a Bible, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, in one of the seat backs close to you, you'll find it. And if you're not sure where Ephesians is, thankfully... Most Bibles have a table of contents, so just open up to one of the first couple pages in the Bible and you'll see Ephesians in there, and it is toward the back of the book. Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we find ourselves uh, in deep waters. Passages like ours reminds us that God's word will not be satisfied. Therefore, God will not be satisfied with superficial, surface level, infant-like truth. No, instead we will find that God's word is much like a freshwater spring. Its source is unsearchably deep, it is breathtaking, it is mysterious, it is perfectly pure and simple, and it is crystal clear. Other than in the person of Christ himself, the Bible is God's highest form of self-disclosure. It is in these pages right here where that we meet the living God. It is in these words that we encounter the greatness of God. And this morning we have the great privilege, privilege, to behold one of the most incredible truths ever, and that is divine election. 
also known as predestination. Considering election is like learning how to swim in deep waters. We cannot see everything. Even still, God's word is sufficient for us. God doesn't ask us to fully know how or why. He simply asks us to behold him in his beauty and to obey him, therefore. And we learn from Paul, the writer of Ephesians, what beholding God's greatness looks like. Because Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is one of the most spectacular thoughts ever written. And not only that, it's literally speaking, the longest sentence in Greek history. Paul writes 202 words consecutively. Our English Bibles have five or six sentences. Paul had one. He did not take a breath. He did not take a break. And we will see why. So let's attempt to follow him here just for a bit. Ephesians 1 verse 3. I was tempted to uh, try to read this in all in one breath, but I, I couldn't. Because, uh, you know, grammar, you're supposed to be able to say one sentence in one breath. Anyway, um, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love having predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This entire sentence has only one intention and that is worship. Paul starts by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying that God is worthy of our praise. There is something about God that should draw our admiration. There is something about God that should draw our affections. There is something about God that warrants our worship. But what is it? What is it that makes God so worthy of praise? Paul says that God has blessed his church. He's blessed his people with spiritual blessings. That is, he's, these are Holy Spirit-given blessings in Christ. What does that mean? 
in Christ. That means that we have been united, we've been sandwiched to Christ. And because of it, we receive all of the blessings that Jesus has. And that those blessings that we have, that Jesus has, when we realize that we have them, it ought to catapult us into praise. And Paul organizes all of those wonderful blessings in the most beautiful of ways. It's subtle upon the first reading, but then it pops out quite clearly. Paul tells us to worship God according to the fact that he is a trinity. That he is God the Father, that he is God the Son, and he is God the Spirit. See, Paul couldn't stop writing because he became overwhelmed with the beauty of God. So you'll notice here that verses 4 through 6 focus on the loving election of the Father. Verses 7 through 12 focus on the revealed redemption of the Son. And verses 13 and 14 focus on the sustaining seal of the Spirit. So what Paul is doing, he's saying, worship this one. Worship the, God the Father in his electing love for the church. Worship God the Son in his eternal work of the cross. And worship God the Spirit in his promise, his guarantee to sustain us until the end. You see, this is hugely important for us to remember in the next three weeks, as we cover this one sentence, that the deep doctrines of God always, every time, take place in the context of worship. This is really important. Please listen. Theology's goal is adoration. Every time. The very purpose of every truth claim that we have in the Bible is to heighten and to explode our affections in the wonders of who God is. As Christians, we're called to want God. As Christians, we are called to yearn for God. We are called to want more of him and more of him and more of him and doctrine. Theological thinking is the servant. It is the slave. It is the fuel for our passion for God. Doctrine sings with David, great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised. Once you fix your eyes on the greatness of God, your heart will respond with a great kind of worship. You can't help yourself when you focus on him. And so I want to give us a brief foundation, not only for this Sunday, but next and next. You see this in your notes. That doctrine is the servant and the safeguard of doxology. Doctrine is the servant and the safeguard of doxology. Doctrine is what makes our worship fly. Doctrine exists for praise. Therefore, this is why I use the word safeguard, because theology in its rightness matters a lot. You can't worship God as he is if you don't know what he's like. So, theological precision, being crisp in the way that you think about God, bolsters your worship. The moment your theology gets flexible is the moment your worship gets flexible. 
The moment your doctrine becomes secondary is the moment that your worship will become secondary. And so my only goal, my only goal as your pastor is for us to dive deep so that we look up. It's all, we're going to go jump into a well where all the lights, all the light pollution of the community will go away and we look at the stars and say, great is the Lord. That's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to do. So let's read verses 3 through 6. That's where I'm going to be today. Again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him in love having predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which we have, or he has blessed us in the beloved. And I would like to give you up front what I think is the main emphasis of these several verses, and it's this, you see this in a big box in your notes. God delights in choosing a godly family to blast his own glory. God delights in choosing a godly family to blast his own glory. We know from verse 3 that Paul's intent is for the Ephesians to worship God. Blessed be the Lord. That's what he wants them to do. And now we're going to see the first reason why. Verse 4, even as, or just as, just as comfortable of a translation, because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So from the start, Paul is saying that the first reason we should praise God is election. Election, predestination, is a, is a cause for worship. It is the basis for worship. Election is one of the main reasons we should be casting our words to God in praise. Now, isn't that interesting? That fascinates me. Because this doctrine has often been the cause of division. Or as one brother said earlier this week, it's even been the cause of hatred among brothers and sisters in Christ. But shame on us. Shame on us, because Paul makes it clear that election should be doing the opposite. It should be stirring up thoughts. It should be stirring up, welling up emotions of God's greatness and his love. And so, I am not ignoring those of you here today. Please understand. And I completely understand where you are coming from. Uh, but perhaps you already are quite upset with me about this. But I pray that God will do what he did to me 11 years ago and yield my constructs, my thoughts to God's word. I used to hate this doctrine too. And then God turned me upside down and it's become the reason that I hit my knees and say thank you. Theology is not up to me. All I need to do is submit. But let's not get ahead here, let me define it. What is it? Anytime we want to be talking about something, we have to know what it is. So what is election? 
what is election? Well, let's just use the words that Paul gives us and create a definition from it. Paul says that God chose us. Now, when you look at that word and you, and you look at how it's used in every single possible way that it can be used, it still means chose. It means to be picked. It means to be singled out. God sovereignly selected us. Then we see in verse 5, he uses a synonym to this word, predestined. That word means to predetermine. It means to select beforehand. Meanwhile, more context clues from Paul. He also tells us that God did this before the foundation of the world. So for the believer, listen, 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 listen. Remember, election is cause for praise. Listen, listen, listen. For the believer, that means that before anything ever was, your salvation was. Before there was time, there was your eternal security in Christ. Before God said, let there be light, he said, here will be my church. So what is election? Election equals, notes, God's eternally predetermined selection of his church. Election is, and I'm just using the very words that Paul gives us. Election is God's eternally predetermined selection of his church. God has always known, that is, he has never not known who will be his, who will be in Christ. And not only is he always known, he is the one who chose them, chose us. Being in Christ finds its unbreakable source in God's free choosing. So listen, there is no middle ground with this topic. Predestination is remarkably simple. There is no trick to it. There is no side explanation of it. The definition of the word needs no clarification. It simply means that God said way back then, you are mine. He has done everything it takes in the scope of time to secure what he declared before time. Now, let me ask, though, why did it need to be back then? Why did election need to happen before the foundation of the world? Why couldn't have God chosen to elect me uh, ten minutes before my mom gave birth to me? Answer, Paul wants to remind the Ephesians and us, and even more than that, it's not just a reminder, he wants to leave them awestruck that their eternal salvation had nothing, nothing to do with them. Excuse me. God planned it all beforehand. That is why we'll hear John preaching in a, several weeks in chapter 2 that salvation is a gift in every way so that no one may boast. I have no boast before the Father. That's why he did it before the foundation of the world. I can't look to God and say, look, God, I chose you. Look how I follow your son. Look at my ability to believe. No, Paul corrects that mistake and he says, are you kidding? The only reason your spirit has new life is because God said so in eternity past. And how, listen, the only thing that I'm, the only reason I'm saying this is because that generates humble praise in the life of the church. 
when we realize that our status before God has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with God's plan through Jesus, we bow our hearts and we say once again, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So please don't misunderstand me either. I am not changing or editing the gospel. If you are not a Christian, if you have repelled Christ, I want you to listen to this, that there is good news for you. There is an opportunity for you. There is an invitation for you. There is good news that Jesus Christ is the perfect son of God. And God, his father, along with his son, is perfect, pristine, flawless, the only God ever. And he created you for himself. But we, in our own human nature, have rebelled against this God. And that rebellion against him, that darkness against him, leads to eternal consequences. When I say, I don't want you, and I will not have you, that leads to eternal condemnation. I am eternally punished, and I am eternally separated. That is the punishment for my sin. But God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to restore us, to renew us through his perfect life that we could never live. And he died a death that we deserved. It's a sin-destroying death. And not only that, it's a death-destroying resurrection. And it demands your response. It is a message that demands a response. If you turn from your wickedness and you trust in the work of Jesus Christ, if you realize that Jesus did everything for you and the only thing you need to do is relinquish yourself before him, you will be saved. That is the offer that Christ gives and it is the most incredible offer there is. The truth demands a response. So, Okay, let me talk to those of you who know Christ for a second. How do we fit this in with predestination? How do we fit the invitation that we must respond to with God's predetermined selection of his church? Right, that's what election is. How does this all fit together? Here is some sort of answer. While the gospel certainly demands our response, it does not depend on our response to be effective. Listen, listen. While the gospel certainly demands our response, it does not depend on our response to be effective. To say that the cross has power only if I accept it strips Jesus of glory. God's power at the cross isn't dependent upon my response to it. It's dependent upon God's eternal decree. The cross works because God said it was going to work. I didn't have the power to respond to the gospel. David's going to preach on this right before John preaches on his. We can't respond to God in our own efforts. By nature, we run. So he takes us in our nature and he says, breathe. <laughs> he says, breathe. 
predestination is the eternal catalyst for being born again. The gospel took root in my heart simply because God said so. He chose me. And again, how this ought to stimulate worship. It shows us that God's eternal loyalty and love toward us has no start date. God has always loved me. You know what the relief that is? He has always loved me. There's never been a day, not a second, when he has not loved me. God was not willing to wait for me to merit, to earn his love. He took the initiative in every way. It wasn't my conversion that sparked God's love in my life. See, a lot of times we, we think of faith as, as the restraining belt of God's love. God can't love me unless I believe him first. No! My faith isn't what produced God's love in my life. It's God's love that produced faith in my life. That's how it is. Faith is the result of God's love poured out for me before time began. Praise God for this doctrine. Election is God's predetermined selection of his church. Thank you, Father. But I'm not here to simply define election. Paul also identifies clear goals of election. Three of them. And we'll go quickly here. Election goal number one. God elected us to be like him. This is godliness. To be like him. Godliness. Election aims for us to be made like God in Christ. Verse 4 again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. I do think that in love it might need to be attached to what came before it, not what comes after it. God chose us before time to secure a holy people for himself. God himself, we know, God himself is robed in white hot holiness. And now we learn that God isn't content with that. He is pleased to also shape us into himself, to be holy like him, to be without blame like him, to show one another like him. In Christ we are being transformed. Sin becomes less desirable. God's will becomes our greatest passion. God's holiness becomes our greatest pursuit. What God loves becomes what I love. That is what God is doing here. And to me, thankful for Mark, a DNA partner of mine, we meet, this settles the question and one of the most common objections to predestination, or at least partly settles it. It is often said, if God predestines, why even evangelize? Thought about that? If God, if God elects his people from eternity past, why why witness at all? The answer is that the elect do what God does. The elect love what God loves. The elect want what God wants. 
if election displays God's eternal pursuit of his people, then evangelism is our privilege to join with God in his work of redeeming the world. Evangelism is the outworking of election. Evangelism is the overflow of election. Because God elected me to be like him, I want to do things like he does. And you know what the number one thing God does is redeem the world for his own glory. So I'm going to be ravenous about redeeming lost sinners for the glory of God too. Election breeds evangelism. That's how the two work together. They don't pit, they're not against each other, they're together. They feed each other. They feed each other. If, therefore, we are refusing to believe a biblical truth because we cannot rationalize it, then we are not, God help us, much different than the pagans who fashion gods after themselves. If I'm looking for a God who I can completely master, then I'm looking in the wrong book. So election goal number one is to be like him, that is godliness. Election goal number two is to be with him. Oh, this one has been so sweet for me. To be with him, adoption, adoption. Verse five, having predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This is where the loving plan of God should astonish us. Catch this. God has chosen you, Christian, before the foundation of the world to be a part of his family. Being close to God, that is what family is. It's the most intimate nucleus unit together. Being close to him is the reason God redeemed you. God's eternal plan doesn't just include a transaction, it welcomes an intimacy. The God of all things desires us to be his adopted children, sons and daughters of God. Because of God's predestined plan through the cross, we suddenly enjoy the fellowship that Jesus has with his Father. We've become partakers, participants of the closeness of the Father and the Son, We've entered their love. Check that out. We have entered their love. We share in Christ the oneness of the Trinity. As adopted children, we get to be with our Father. And if we're with our Father, He wants to share with us what is His greatest delight. And you know what the greatest delight of God is? Himself. God is adamant about sharing himself with us. So make sure you're hearing me. The greatest inheritance as a child of God is simply being with him. And I'm not not talking about academically, people. I'm talking about experientially. I'm talking about experiencing and encountering the living God as my father. See, I love my kids. I love all of them, like, so much. I am attached to them. I love them dearly. They're extremely valuable to me. They make me laugh. They make me cry. (laughs) They make me do some unholy things as well. 
But there is, <laughs> there is such an intimacy that I have with my kids. And it translates into enjoyment. I want to be around them. Abigail came in to our bedroom this morning and just went like this. And gave me a hug. And I died. <laughs> I died in that moment because it was so precious. But how much more explosive how much more volcanic is the love of God for his people? He has gone to utter lengths to secure fellowship with us as sons and daughters. What it is, what an honor it is to run to the deep wells of joy in Christ. What, what a refuge God is. See, Jesus so brilliantly forecasted the Christian life with just one phrase. Abide in me. Sit with me. Hang out with me. Sit at my table. God's election breeds fellowship with him. Time with him. God's invitation every single day to his godly family. Remember, he's making us to be like him. He's making us to be godly. So I'm calling you a godly family. He has invited us every day as his godly family, that is the church, to say this. This is his invitation. Dine with me. Dine with me. Will you come? Will you join me for a feast today? Why are you so busy? Why are you so upset? What has you so distracted that you won't meet with me, child? And oh, how our prayer lives can change now that we have our brother Christ who prays for us and our Father God who listens to us. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? More and more and more of God awaits those who seek him. He sought you so that you would seek him. Fellowship with God is here waiting will we go to meet him and I also want to say this that number two the number two goal is a means for the number one working perhaps God's most efficient way of making us like him is to be with him the more we spend time with God the more we'll look like God okay so intimacy with God produces godly character okay so number one to be like him, number two, to be with him, number three, to be for him, to be for him. Verse six, or leading in from verse five, he predestined us for adoption through Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the, that's the line I want to think of. To the praise of his glorious grace. Ultimately underneath number one and number two sits number three. Ele election elevates the glory of God. Election elevates the glory of God. We're going to see this three weeks in a row. The predestination matters simply because God gets glory through it. God wins the attention of the universe through his selection of saints. It reveals his majesty. Election displays his sovereignty and power. 
choosing his church, broadcasts his greatness. Therefore, God is firm in getting what belongs to him. And you know what belongs to him? Universal and unequivocal fame. God himself, I love this, God himself is at the center of everything that God does. God himself is at the center of everything that God does. So my adoption, my intimacy, God's desire of me is ultimately for himself. God is the center of the gospel. God is the center of election. God is the center of being declared right in his eyes. God is the center of adoption. Everything else, God is the center of it all. God does everything so as to promote himself. But this last and primary goal of God's glory reveals one final thing that I want to bring up, and that is election's cause. Election's cause. Election only has one major cause, and that is his divine joy. His divine joy. My favorite phrase in these four verses, did not expect it, but as more and more I studied it, it became this in verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. So verse 5 again, having predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The more and more I've looked and the more and more I've studied and dug around, I'm prone to translate this instead as this. I think it's in your notes. Uh, based on the strong delight of his will. Based on the strong delight of his will. See, within the will of God is this pleasing desire to predestine us. The engine of election, the engine of the gospel, the engine, what makes every part of history move is very simply God's own delight in himself. Electing us as his children makes God happy. It gives him joy. Electing his people is a part of his nature. It is who he is. God only acts according to who he is. God only acts according to what delights him. Election for the sake of adoption is thoroughly pleasing to God. I, I'm so thankful for that. I'm needful of that. I need to be reminded that the reason God elects his saints is because it makes him happy to do so. He is pleased within himself to do it. Therefore, comes a mild caution to deny or ignore predestination is to deny or ignore something fundamentally true about God's character. Election is essential to the theology of a Christian because when you take it away, you rob God of due glory. So instead of skipping election, which would have been much easier to do, instead of skirting by predestination, Paul seems to use it as the springboard into his entire letter based on God's choice, worship. Based on God's choice, live holy lives. Based on God's choice, love one another. Paul invites us to worship the electing God of the heavens. This text calls for an overwhelmed, and I've been overwhelmed by this. Overwhelmed, satisfied, joyous Christian who drinks deeply in the wells of a delightful God. So in your bulletin, I provided just a few passages. This is one piece of practice this week, if, if you'd like to. 
I provided just a few passages in the Bible that come alongside Paul's teaching in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. And one option or encouragement is to simply read them and let them soak it in. I pray, uh, I've prayed a lot that things that I say today are not locked away in some random corner that I'm pulling out of a hat, but we would see in, instead that this is actually a New Testament-wide doctrine. So, so meditate upon these words and simmer upon them and plead with God to help you understand them and lead you into worship and gratitude. And secondly, I want to challenge us. Um, and this is a hard one for me. I want to challenge you with reduced distraction time this week. What would it look like for you to shut off those typical areas that are, are sucking your time away? Um, but instead, what we can do is remember the invitation of the Father. If God truly has adopted us, then why wouldn't we do whatever it takes to spend time with Him? And that is then my, my prayer. Accept the invitation of the Father to abide. He has gone to great lengths to secure fellowship with us, and I pray that we will not bypass the sacrifice of Christ for our convenience. So let's spend time with Him and enjoy Him. God delights in choosing a godly family to blast his own glory. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. You are so precious to us. have, because of your own work in us, you've become so sweet to us. Father, I ask for more. I ask for more sweetness. I ask for more of you. Lord, that as we meditate upon the maybe one of the greatest mysteries of the Bible. As we meditate upon your secure and final election of your people, that it would lead us to kneel and worship you. Help us not leave today in anger, frustration, or pride. Help us, invite us to spend time with you and just in gratitude and in wonder, worship. This doctrine is extremely clear and unfortunately controversial. So Father, I pray for your grace upon me if I have taken too many steps, be retracting. Or if I have not taken enough steps, that you would push it forward. You ultimately are the carrier of your own glory. You're the one who secures it all for all time. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Who has done it all. 
we eagerly await next week where we get to think about the redemption of the cross, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Make us ready, even starting today, to receive your word next week. In your name, amen. amen. Thank you for listening. So now we would like to respond to God's word and in particular to the spectacular message of the gospel through communion. Communion is a symbol. It is a sign of what God has done for us in Jesus. That the pinnacle of the gospel story is that Christ died for us. That it, that it pleased, believe it or not, Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to crush his son. Because through that crushing, we all receive life. And so if you've believed in the work of the cross, if you have relinquished your life to him, we invite you to this table where the bread represents his body beaten and his blood poured out for us. It is a new covenant in his blood. We have a new status in Christ. We have a new status in Christ. And it's right there in sign and symbol. So take it with confidence, those of you who believe. And those of you who don't, I would like to have a conversation with you, if you're willing. What would it look like to, to hear more about this Jesus? To follow him, to surrender to him, to, to kill everything in you that you might follow him. Will you come talk to me about that? Would you be willing to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord, as the one who says, you are mine? Because here's the, here's the certainty that I have. You'll come to him today because he says so. And I love that. What a relief it is for me to know that if you might come to him today, it's because God has been working in your life before time, before the clock was even ticking, he snatched you. Praise God for election. Would you come and accept that invitation? We're going to go row by row. If you're